Chris, and welcome, and it is episode 132, and it's a very warm welcome to one half of the authors of the brand new book on St. David's Press, Sons of Cambria, Who's Who of Welsh International Football, 1876 to 1946. Uh, he's written it with Gareth M. Davis. It's welcome to the podcast, Ian Garland. Yeah, thanks, Russell. And it's also a warm welcome to the man behind uh, St. David's Press. It's Ashley Drake. How are you, Ashley? Welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much indeed. I've got the press release here, and uh, Phil Stead calls the book indispensable. Professor Martin Johns refers to it as a brilliant piece of research. And am I right, Ian, in thinking that it is as thorough and about as detailed a book of this nature, a who's who, of any country in the world? Well, of all the ones I've seen, I think ours is the most comprehensive. One of the reasons for that is because a lot of who's who's, and uh, in fact a lot of books on individual clubs tend to stop at the uh, players when the player's career ends. Uh, but what we try to do is to carry it on slightly so we get a more rounded picture of the player. I mean, some of the stories in the book uh, are quite sad. Um, yeah, players falling on hard times. Uh, so we we wanted to make it a bit more comprehensive than just a book about football and footballers. It was also about personalities and people. And so, just to be clear, what we've got here is uh, profiles of every single international player dating back to 1876 and Wales' first international against Scotland. Uh, Edwin Cross is sort of nominated as uh, as number as cap number one. Uh, he was in goal for that game. And uh, we'll, we'll touch on the reason why it goes in a chronological format. It makes sense, but uh, there's a little bit of a story to that. Uh, and it goes all the way through to 1946. But of course, Wales didn't play any official internationals after the outbreak of the Second World War, um, but there were wartime internationals. There's also been other uncaptain representative matches that uh, the country has played. And what is remarkable about the book is not just the thoroughness of the detail, but of course it's the detail of players who never won full caps, but they played in those wartime games and those other representative games. The amount of detail as well about a lot of the players' um, post-playing career or maybe careers that they had alongside their playing days. I mean, for you, Ashley, as the, from the publisher's perspective, ostensibly it's a football box. There's an awful lot in there about the footballer's non-footballing career, as I say. Why, why did that appeal? Well, it was important. I'm afraid that that aspect of the book was all down to uh, to Ian and Gareth. And I do support Ian's comments in that if you're interested in this field and you're interested in football or Welsh football and the Welsh footballers, then your interest goes further than just their last ever game for Wales. You, you are interested in what happened in the rest of their career and in their life. And there are some players in this book who had a very illustrious career and went on to do good things. Uh, and some players, unfortunately, who had a very sad end to their life. And it adds to the depth and the strength of the book that we include all of those players and what happened to them as far as we know for the rest of their lives. So there was a forerunner to the Sons yeah. of Cambria. Back in 1991, uh, Ian, you and Gareth co-wrote yeah. a book yeah. uh, very similar in, in, in its premise, uh, providing some profiles of, of, of everybody who had been capped by Wales up until that point. But what strikes me is this little thing called the internet has been invented since then, since 1991. <laughs> so I'm kind of interested to what extent 
does it pose advantages to the research? Again, the level of detail that's in the book can't be achieved without yeah. you know significant amount of, of research, clearly. Or does yeah. the internet pose its own own challenges? And I suppose my follow-up question to that is, I suppose since 1991, uh, whether it's the internet or, or other sources, presumably you've been able to maybe update, possibly even correct some of those entries in that 91 edition? Uh, it was extremely difficult in the years up to it, 1991, when the first edition came out. I mean, I'll give you an illustration of the problem. I mean, one of the tools that we used was the census. And of course, at the time, it was only the 1881 census that was available. But to access that, I mean, in a way, I was fortunate living in uh, near London and working in London, that the office where the census was available was over the road to my office in London. So it was possible to nip into there, say, lunchtime and do a little bit of research. I mean, it sounds easy, but of course you had to queue for a microfilm reader and then you had to start looking for your particular individual and you might not find it. And of course, it's it's completely different now. I mean, you just go online and you can make any number of searches. It's so easy. I mean, I think people these days don't realise how difficult it was before the internet. But getting back to your question, I mean, the sources that are on the internet now are absolutely amazing. I mean, you've got, you know, birth, death, marriages, wills, you've got Welsh newspapers online, you've got British newspaper archive. But of course, one of the things that you've got to be aware of is uh, particularly with some sites where there may be information on the player, which is wrong. But of course, once it gets on the internet, it's awfully difficult to get mm. it corrected. Yeah, and of course, the thing that strikes me when you look through the book is the number of players called John Jones or John Davis or James oh, Williams. There must be a particular yeah. challenge. Yeah, I, th- I think I counted there are more Davises in the whole volume, the 1991 volume, than uh, any other surname. But I'll give you an illustration of how difficult it is with John Jones. The one that played in the very first international came from uh, Kevin Maurer. And uh, when I looked at possible candidates, I think I came up with 32 individuals. Really? And we've never actually managed to nail him. We've got information on him, but we've never nailed the birth or a death for him. Yeah, and I suppose this is the thing, isn't it? It's it's as as a piece of work. There's always more information to find, more information maybe to correct, to clarify. I don't think he's ever really finished, do you? Uh, Which is bad news for Gareth and myself. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the appendices lists all of the birthplaces of all of the internationals listed in the book, the full internationals. As you would expect, perhaps in the early days, the the, the team, of course, there's a very heavy, strong emphasis on the northeast of Wales. An awful lot of people born in Wrexham. But then there's also yep. these smaller communities, Talgarth, Llanllechid yeah. uh, gets a mention. And they all get their little sort of moment in the, in the sun. Absolutely. Even somebody in Peru, wasn't yeah. there? I've, I've misplaced the page. Uh, that, that's, um, you'll, that's, uh, you'll remember him before I can find him, I'm sure. That's Macmillan. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. actually ended up in Swansea. And I managed to get uh, in contact with his uh, granddaughter. Yeah, he had, he had an interesting career. He played for, for Stoke in the 1870s. But why Wales decided to uh, select him, I, I don't know. Yeah, here is uh, Robert John Macmillan, born in Lima, 1856. Died in Gorsinan, 1928. He was a goalkeeper. Two caps versus England Scotland in 1881. Actually, we sort of say volume one. What else have you got up your sleeve with uh, with Sons of Cambria? Well, I think volume one is a bit of a giveaway, seeing as there will be a volume two. I think they, one of the one of the uh, big discussions that I had with both Ian and Gareth 
three years ago now, four years ago, when we first broached the idea of the book, was that, uh, as, as you've quite rightly mentioned, the 1991 uh, edition covered all the players and it covered them in alphabetical order by surname. And what I was concerned about was, obviously as a commercial publisher, was that as soon as a new player was capped after the publication of the book, the book was out of date. So I broached uh, with the two authors whether they'd be prepared to rejig the information they had into uh, order by cap appearance. And then that means, which they were very, I was very grateful that they agreed to do that. But that gave us a completely different project in that case because it gave us the chronological history of Welsh football in terms of the players. And it, one interesting thing, there are uh, sections in the book where you can see there were four or five players all from one yeah. club, all capped at the same time for, for, yeah. for the same game because that particular club was doing well or because they were local to where the game was being played. So it gives you those little bits and pieces that you wouldn't have seen if it had been alphabetical order only. But also for the friends and family and the descendants of these players, it means that these players now have a number. They have a number and they can uh, and they have for posterity. Everyone knows exactly where they fit in the jigsaw puzzle of Welsh football internationals. Uh, but that then led us to the need to divide it into volumes. So the first volume uh, goes up to the full internationals to 1939. But obviously it does include all the wartime games which were non-capped 1946. Um, and then we did have some discussion as to where volume two would end. And volume two will probably will be end, I think, where the players who are mainly all still alive, but they have all retired now. And then there will be a volume three, which will bring it completely up to date in a year or two's time. But, but volume two, as I'm sure Ian will outline shortly, uh, we are planning to get it out at the end of this year. Yeah, that, that's uh, pretty well advanced. i give, give you an indication of the scope. Uh, when the first volume came out, uh, we'd got up to player number 575. And the next player capped was Ryan Giggs. Uh, I think now we're up to about 735 or 740. So I'm thinking uh, I need to discuss it with Gareth. But we, it, it's looking at the, the, the next volume will probably cover from 575 to about 650, something like that. It depends on where we draw the line. I think one of the discussions we had was, would would, would the Bobby Gould era be uh-huh. at the end of Volume yeah. 2 or the beginning of Volume 3? So yeah. that's that, that that's something which we yeah. are still discussing. But it's around about that time where the players from that era have all retired now, although some of them have gone into management. And thank, thankfully, most of them are still alive and are still have got in, interesting lives and interesting careers. It's around about that period where the cutoff will be at the end of Volume 2. Tell me about the pictures, the photographs, because I know actually when I said to you, I had a little, you and I had a little catch up and you just wanted to pick my brains on the, on like a prototype um, kind of layout, I suppose. Uh, I don't know what the publishing speak for, yes, for, that's for, the, fine. The, for it was. Uh, okay. I remember you at that time sort of saying, listen, we want to have the pictures in there. We want to have the photos of them, yeah. as many of them as we, as we can get. I think there's only maybe one or two, isn't it, that perhaps we were not sure of. How do you, uh, Ian, prove the veracity of those images so for example you know quite simply in a lineup that player there is that davis and and not one or other of the other davises yeah, um, in the lineup well i mean two ways uh with some photos that we got hold of they were captioned i mean a, a, an indication was that uh, gareth i think he was in touch with andrew hicknell the the glamorgan cricket chap 
and uh, I got a phone call saying that uh, WPO, who was captain of Wales in the 1880s, his son lived down in Maidenhead. So I went over to see him, and he was enormously helpful. The uh, photo that you see on the front of the book came from him, and this was captioned. For some of the other photos, it was a question of... I've been through so many newspapers and Gareth had such a collection of uh, reports that uh, we were able to identify them uh, from uh, a relative sending them into newspapers and saying, you know, 30 years ago, my grandfather, whatever, played for Wales and it would be captioned underneath. What also helped was the fact that a lot of these players who played for Wales played in the Welsh Cup. And I'd done a book on the Welsh Cup, and I'd collected a lot of play, a lot of photographs of Welsh Cup winning teams, and uh, we were able to sort of cross-reference individuals from Welsh Cup photos and to uh, be able to name them on the uh, in the Welsh team. But to be honest with you, I mean, having looked at newspaper reports and individual pictures and team pictures for what. 30 35 years you get to recognize the players yeah okay and some of them are photos obviously but there's others um so for example john joseph thomas jones i've got here his is a photo you've then got players like uh ted visit though for whom it, it's more like uh it's more of a drawing is it almost, almost like one of those sort of cigarette cards is it yeah yeah and yeah, uh, yeah. yeah ted visit born in kogan what <laughs> You include some pros in here as well. Clever and fast is Vizard, with energy all aglow, as dexterous as a wizard when the leather's at his toe. It's almost kind of like, sort of, like a rhyming nominative determinism, isn't it? He um, wouldn't really have worked if he was a towering stopper um, <laughs> rather than uh, sort of more uh, twinkle toes. Uh, winger uh, or right outside yeah. left. With the later players from this period, of course, uh, you know, they're going to be more and more photos, individual photos. Uh, the problem you have is really up to about 1900. Before then, it could be difficult. I mean, one of the, uh, well, a couple of strokes of luck that we had was um, getting hold of a copy of a photo of Dr. Daniel Gray and also uh, Fred Thompson, these are two guys who actually helped found the Welsh FA. I mean, one was a Scotsman, one was an Englishman, but I'd, I'd never seen photos of them previously. Uh, and the one on Dr. Gray came from South Africa, and the one of Fred Thompson came from Holland. And the relatives of Dr. Gray in South Africa told me that they had a medal. They still had the medal from 1876, which was presented to all of the players who played against Scotland in really? the first international. Wow. Uh, I referred earlier, obviously, to correcting or clarifying, uh, you know, elements of the 1991 edition. But presumably, there's, you know, anecdotes and and and, and stories and, and and tales that you you've uncovered oh, yeah. as well in the course yeah. of the book. Um, uh, a favourite of mine is one that uh, he Owen, uh, the chap in Maidenhead, who was the son of W. P. Owen. He w- he was telling me, and I, I'm not sure that this is common knowledge, that when the Wales team played Scotland. They'd never seen the ball headed previously, and they dubbed it the Scotch kick. <laughs> it's really interesting in, in terms of discussion about dementia and, you know, talk about saying, well, young players, when they're training, they shouldn't be headed the ball, so we can blame the Scots. <laughs> well, there's, a, there's probably a lot we can blame the Scots for, isn't there? Let's be honest. <laughs> 
Just interrupting this episode with Ian and Ashley to tell you a little bit more about its sponsor. Sporting Heritage is a not-for-profit community interest company, a CIC, whose work supports the collection, preservation, access to and research of Sporting Heritage across the UK and wider. You can find them working in the heritage sector itself, but also in the media and the sports sectors. Specifically in Wales, they led on the drafting of a strategic framework for sporting heritage in Wales that was completed at the end of 2021. And out of this has come a Sporting Heritage Wales network. So if you're working or volunteering in the field of sporting heritage, if you have a collection, stories to tell or memorabilia, if you manage a sporting collection, or if you want to see how sporting collections can support your work, the Wales network is for you. There's more information about the Wales Network, including details of its upcoming February 2022 meeting on the Sporting Heritage website, www.sportingheritage.org.uk. Then click on the Nations tab for the link to Wales activity. Sporting Heritage also hosts a football heritage network that looks specifically at the heritage of the game and which was founded in 2020. The next meeting of that network is 9th of March and it will be focusing on the Women's European Championships. Again, for more info, head to the website sportingheritage.org.uk, the What We Do tab and then click on Networks. You can follow Sporting Heritage on Instagram and Facebook at Sporting Heritage CIC and Twitter at Sporting History. Sporting Heritage also has a podcast channel, so if you want to hear more of my dulcet tones, chatting to people who use Sporting Heritage to tell their stories about sports as diverse as rugby league, hockey, goalball, judo, stoolball, Punjabi wrestling, and lots more, then head to soundcloud.com forward slash Sporting Heritage. This is perhaps where maybe the book is of greater... Interested, I find it fascinating the anorexic enthusiasts among us. But in terms of looking at the evolution of the game more broadly, in terms of its well, uh, codification and the rules and so on, just that comment from Mr. Owen there is potentially of, of use and of interest to his football historians, then, for example. The other interesting thing for me is the way that the game developed in terms of uh, uh, tactics. You know, you began with two fullbacks, two halfbacks, and six forwards. And uh, you read reports where a certain player, he was tasked with basically taking the goalkeeper out of the game. So one man would go for the goalkeeper and the other guy would have the ball. Now, you know, you've got all the protection for goalkeepers today, but it just illustrates how different the game is today to what it was when it started off. And coincidentally, I've opened the book here at uh, number 138, Caesar Augustus Llewellyn Jenkins. <laughs> Six foot three, fourteen stone, a moustache almost <laughs> as impre- impressive as his yeah. physique. Um, known as the mighty, mighty seat, the mighty Caesar, <laughs> or Jumbo, to opponents. Player of no little skill yep. and a master of the shoulder charge. He was reputed to have a fearsome but fair charge and woe betide any opponent who thought they could get the better of him. One reporter described him as having an atomic shoulder charge. Yeah. But what little I knew of Caesar Jenkins, I always had him listed as being born in Bilth Wells. And what you've got here is he's born in Bochrude. Now, that's that little village, isn't it, to the south of Bilth. You can cross over the little picturesque bridge, isn't it, over the Y, that'll be, wouldn't it? And then you can travel up the east bank and you can sort of cut off, uh, cut out going through Bilth Town. So just that little snippet just like that has, has added something to you know, my next drive to Mid Wales or North Wales at the A470, that, that, that 
that sense of um, you know, there's a little connection here between this tiny, tiny little village and the national team. This uh, birthplace causes a few headaches because the information on censuses was not always accurate. And of course, the individual as a child would have had no input at all on the census return. Someone had done it, done it for him. But what swung it with uh, Jenkins was the uh, registration district. Uh, when we looked at where his uh, birth was registered, it wasn't registered in the area that covered Bill. It was registered in the area that covered Borod. So uh, that's what we decided to go with based on what was there when he was actually born. You're right about Bill, of course, because that gives rise to one of his other nicknames, which we haven't uh, used, uh, which I'm not sure whether, uh, whether this is the right forum to use it. <laughs> well, you're properly aware of it anyway. I, I think it's okay in this instance. I can maybe put okay. a, a parental guidance sticker on the front of this episode. Well, uh, one of his other nicknames was the bastard. <laughs> One wonders if there was much competition in the town of Bilf, indeed in the village of uh, no. Bochud, for that no. uh, for that nickname. Yeah. Incidentally, anyone who's an Arsenal fan listening to this, Caesar Augustus yeah. Jenkins was Caesar Augustus Llewellyn Jenkins was your first ever international he was. player he was. as well so uh, yeah. as I said full of little yeah. snippets like this actually we haven't given it a plug yet where is it available presumably from many reputable but also a few disreputable <laughs> bookshops well you can buy the book from any any bookseller the uh, bricks and mortar booksellers or any online booksellers uh, and the, they can be they can be ordered also uh, direct from uh, from the company's website also it's worth noting that it's also available as an ebook so it, it can be kept uh, electronically as well and also just to, just um, listening to you both there was I was flicking through the appendices and that's one thing which I think is different from the uh, for those people who know of the edition that came back in out in 1991 is that we've arranged the appendices so we've we've got all the players featured and the number of caps that they've got in and ordered and grouped together so we know that um, Billy Meredith is it was top at 48 and Fred Keener was next on, on, on 32 caps uh, but even the players who got one cap they're they're all listed in there too also all the goals all the goals scored for Wales in that period are all listed in in the back of the book and the goal scorers are there and it's unsurprising that Billy Meredith is towards the top of that list too and also we added a list of all the all the captains that we know of and I think that, that, that that's the important thing there were some games where we still don't know who the captain was but all the ones where we know who the captain was and we definitely do know that our friend Caesar Augustus Llewellyn Jenkins did actually captain Wales once, and they're all listed there too. And you mentioned about fans fans of Arsenal. Well, irrespective of whether you support um, Aberystwyth or you support Arsenal, um, most of the clubs uh, that we know of in Wales and uh, and in England and a few in Scotland and Ireland too, they're all listed in the back of the book of how many players were capped for Wales whilst playing for those clubs. And although the the, um, the list is dominated at the beginning by Wrexham, the Druids, Oswestry, Street, Chirk, Bangor, Manchester United, or, or who were known as Newton Heath in those days, there were also many other clubs on a smaller level who did have players playing for Wales who who were capped whilst they were playing for the other teams. It's fascinating for for fans of those clubs, whether you support Hibs or, or Leeds or Derby or Fulham, that those are all listed there 
too, um, and as well as as we already mentioned, the birthplaces um, where of of those players, which again is dominated by the wider Wrexham area, northeast Wales and Shropshire, and then also I I learned something. There's some some towns are coming up and some some villages as birthplaces, like one called Trevonin. And it was listed as England. So I had to go and just check the map just to make sure it wasn't a typo. And yes, it's one of those villages in the north of Shropshire, which has a Welsh name. And there's quite a few of them. And it's amazing how many Welsh players were born and lived in those, in probably in those days, Welsh-speaking villages on the border, but on the English side. Um, and their place, place of birth is a Welsh name, but it happened to be in England. So it's it, so it's fascinating for on 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 many different levels. So it's available as a paperback and it's also available as an ebook from all good and some bad booksellers. <laughs> and I commend you both and uh, Gareth as well. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah. it's a terrific book. I can't get enough of it. Ian, I mean, how is volume two going? Ashley said you're hoping to have that out yeah. before the end of the year. So uh, ready in time for your Christmas list. Well, we hope so. Yes. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, um, ironically, I think with Volume 2, it's uh, one of the uh, biggest problems is establishing uh, some of the captains. I've been okay. trawling through newspaper reports and some of them are missing. Uh, it might be a case of having to go to the FAW minutes, which are now available in Aberystwyth up to uh, a certain date. And they weren't available in 1991, of course. But can I just go back to Caesar Jenkins for a moment? and make one point about uh, this particular player. Uh, you mentioned that he was six foot three. Uh, this was a time when, you know, five foot eight, five foot nine would be tall. He stood out. I mean, it's the same with Roos, Lee Roos, who was a six foot goalkeeper. In terms of height and weight, they were probably atypical, mm. well above yeah. average. And then, then Caesar tops it off with a... Quite an impressive moustache as well, of course. <laughs> you want to see Price okay, White? Right, I've missed that one. Okay, so where am I? One, one six one, nine. Six nine. Oof. Oof. Yep. Yeah, no, you're right. Price White. Uh, another of the Friars <laughs> schoolboys, born in in Bangor. Uh, one cap while at London Welsh. Yeah. This is Ireland in 1896. Yeah. Um, counted uh, Mark Humley amongst his colleagues. Uh, interesting thing about uh, Price White is, uh, of course, when Lloyd George uh, died in 1945, the uh, Carnarvon Borough seat, uh, which had uh, always been liberal, actually went Conservative for the one and only time, and only for a matter of months. And the uh, MP was uh, David Price White. Who was Price White's uh, son? And if there's one thing I was just wanted to add as well, uh, Russell, was that as you said, we've got uh, photos of almost all the players, but there are a few there where we just can't find them. And hopefully now, if there are any descendants of these players, family members, people who've got photographs in their attics, that they'll be able to see that where there's no photograph, we've put the um, FAW crest. And we would both, as the authors and the publisher, would be absolutely yeah. delighted if any person could locate yeah. a photograph yeah. of those few that we're missing to help complete it's 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 like an academic panini sticker book to be honest <laughs> yeah there are a few that we haven't got and we're yeah. des and we're desperate to get yeah, them yeah. Uh, so yeah john yeah. owen and joseph turner both won their only caps against england yeah. in, in 1892 with don't missing pictures of those but what's interesting is here it's not that there's little information about them that you've been able to turn up. In fact, Joe Turner 
uh, was one of five brothers, two of whom were also capped by Wales. And he was the brother-in-law to Horace oh, yes. Blue. And Horace Blue is quite a giant, I suppose, of the of, of, of the Welsh game in the early years. Um, he's a member of the Welsh Sports Hall of Fame, which we covered with Rob Cole not so long ago. So it's not that there isn't information about them, but those photos are yeah. just frustratingly just out of reach, I guess. Uh, talking of Horace Blue, uh, he was the subject of some uh, poetry, or well, I use the term poetry. Uh, if you look on page 193, you can see a, a celebration of the uh, player. Okay, more prose. 193. Uh, so 93. Um, okay, from the land of the leak. Well, I'm sorry, but I'm tempted to stop there. Um, from the land of the leak, he's a gallant defender. His methods not meek are more robust than tender. And foes on the raid, seeking goals to annex him, retire sore dismayed from this hero of Wrexham. Well, yeah, okay. It's it, it it'll do I suppose. Uh, <laughs> um, this month that the episode's going out is um, is is the art of sporting heritage. I'm not sure how much artistic merit there is in that, but uh, yeah, we'll uh, we'll gloss over that. But it's interesting, isn't it, that you know you take a player like Joseph Turner. Yep. Then towards the end of his life, he was a licensee of the yep. Crown yep. Inn in Cardigula. You've got um, Horace Blue, who yep. later kept several hotels, pubs, a number of players that went into pubs. I mean that's a cliche, I suppose, yeah. um, you know, throughout the, the the course of the game, you know, into fairly recent yeah. years, but I guess only cliche, but it's, it's got so much truth in it. So blue, no. uh, look at what we got here: the Griffin, and Ponkai, yeah. uh, the Bowling Green is still there in Wrexham. You know, people will be familiar with that pub. A lot of the pubs that they did go into won't necessarily be there. It gives you that insight into the sort of social aspect of the of the game, and something I've I don't know, I've always toyed the idea of doing is almost kind of like mapping those pubs that have got some connection with former internationals, you know, where they um, end up managing them or become the licensee or whatever. Some of those pubs will still be there, but others, you know, like the Bowling Green, but others won't be, or at the very least the buildings are there, but they're no longer pubs. I think it's just a, a fascinating insight, really. Yeah, there's quite a lot of read across between uh, what the players did then and, you know, what, what they tended to do in the, what, 60s, 70s and 80s, where... You know, they took took mm. pubs and or even tobacconists. I mean, I remember going to see Tommy Jones. He had a little shop, news agent shop down the uh, by Bangor Pier, presumably because he, you know, the amount of money he'd earned from the game wasn't sufficient to keep him in some sort of uh, style that it would these days. I mean, you just think what these players would be earning now. And when you say Tommy Jones, that's T G Jones, the the famous T G Jones, Everton. yeah. Yeah, player, yeah. Everton, great, yeah. I actually saw him play. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. He was a fantastic player. Absolutely brilliant. Both Gareth and myself are what we call Welsh League North sweats because in the late 50s and the 60s, we used to we used to follow the uh, teams in the Welsh League North. Yeah, so I mean, that was one of my questions. I mean, what is your... You know your other connection to the game. I mean, did you play? Do you play? Coach <laughs> no. ran the line. I mean, obviously you've written other books. The press no, release touches no, on other books you've done. You mentioned the Welsh Cup, history yeah, of Canavan no, Town. I, I, I wouldn't get on the bench in a pub team. Uh, <laughs> I'm half and half. My mother's Welsh. Uh, my father was from London. I lived for about 25 years in Wales, and my father had strong connections with Canavan Town. He was the vice chairman and treasurer. So. Uh, I was brought up on the, on the football in the Welsh League from an early age, uh, and uh, so was Gareth. Uh, I moved to London in the 80s, 
I mean, the downside, of course, was not being able to see so many matches. <laughs> the upside was, of course, the proximity to the newspaper library. So I suppose, really, as a substitute for not being able to watch so many matches, I decided that uh, it would be a good thing to try and record uh, some of the Welsh game. To that end, one of the other things that Gareth and myself are involved in is we're trying to put together an encyclopedia of Welsh football. Sometimes it goes well, sometimes it doesn't. But for the moment, of course, that's had to take a back seat to Volumes 2 and Volume 3 of the Who's Who. Just a quick reminder that we now have a Patreon page where you can subscribe to any one of four tiers, ranging from £2 to £10 a month. There's a range of exclusive content coming your way, as well as some other perks and offers, not least a 10% discount on purchases with exquisitely Wrexham-based artist Liam Stokes-Massey, a.k.a. Pencil Craftsman. Just head over to www.patreon.com forward slash podcast underscore Peldroid. One of the things that we uh, we haven't said where the name Sons of Cambria actually comes from. It, it wasn't something that we uh, made up over a cup of tea or a pint of Guinness or anything. It was uh, the Sons of Cambria was what the newspaper at the time called the first Welsh team that uh, uh, appeared for the FAW. And one of the papers, I'm not sure which paper it was, but dubbed them the Sons of Cambria. So it, so it goes all the way. So that name goes all the all, all the way back to the first game or two in uh, 1876. Uh, and that's why we chose the, that as, as, as the title of the book. One of the things that fascinated me, and it goes back to what you said about players once they leave, once they stop playing football, is um, James Trainer, who was known as the Prince of Goalkeepers. He was a huge, huge star in the Victorian period. But what's interesting about James Taylor is he's another one who, who had a pub in Preston uh, after he retired from playing. But he, I, I discovered that he turned up in Sanger's Circus, uh, where he actually uh, went in goal and faced a footballing elephant, if you can believe. Uh, 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 this is an incredible story. And <laughs> uh, 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 I don't know what the elephant had been doing, but he'd obviously been well trained, because trainer went in goal and faced three shots from the elephant. And the ball was actually two foot six inches in diameter. <laughs> when the animal took the, the, the penalty, the trainer was able to stop the ball. He saved the first and the second one, but for the third effort, the elephant, he did a feint. <laughs> and he raised his foot and he didn't shoot. And of course, once trainer had moved, he shot. And that was it. The elephant had beaten him 1 0. But reading a bit further, and it's not in the book, I thought, oh, you know, they've just taken this uh, this goalkeeper uh, out of the uh, crowd and provided a bit of entertainment. But it uh, it transpires that he turned up in his international gear. <laughs> so he, he must have been paid by the circus to, to face the elephant. But I suppose that's one way to make money after you've left the game. <laughs> we all thought it was John Aldridge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he started, started all that... Uh... But, that's penalty but it nonsense. Does show nothing new in the game. No, that's that's very true. Very <laughs> true. I think footballing elephants is probably the point at which to uh, wrap this up. I don't think we're going to get any better than that. We're going to top that, are we? So, yeah, once again, best of luck with the book. Best of luck with the rest of the work involved with volumes two and three. Um, I've already begun scribbling my list for Sean Con for, for later this year uh, with volume two. 
quick plug for Art Sporting Heritage Month, which is this month that uh, the sponsor of this episode, Sporting Heritage, is curating. Uh, you know, with partners, but uh, there's a host of activities running all through the month, uh, with uh, different sports being focused on throughout the month. Best of luck uh, and to and to Gareth as well, of course, with uh, with volumes two and three. I guess it's just to repeat that call out, I suppose, that that Ashley made earlier. You know, if anyone he does have any contacts or any, no matter how tenuous the the relationship people think might be to any of the internationals of uh, of your, then um, to, to to get in we'd touch. love to hear from them. And Ashley, thanks once again, and uh, best of luck with um, with your side of the of, of the venture uh, and putting it all out it deserves to succeed and uh, and I, I i hope it does because of course you know things like the the football museum in wrexham opening its doors in, in 2025 you know you look at something like the city of culture bid that wrexham have been shortlisted for uh, only a week or two before recording that has football as one of its pillars it's an interesting time there is that there does seem to be a, a you know a lot of interest in the heritage of the game and, and this this only helps kind of enrich that and and, and take it forward as well so um yeah, hopefully it's it's it's, uh, it's landing on sort of fertile soil as it were. Uh, I'd also make a plea, Russell, uh, in terms of heritage for clubs, leagues, and association to deposit their records in um, either national library or local archives. When we first started in 1991, the uh, the amount of information available in archives was pretty scant. It's a little bit better now with uh, Martin Johns having arranged for the FAW minutes to be in Aberystwyth, but we would just hate it if clubs and associations and league threw stuff away you know would they always offer it to archives i mean at least they can make a judgment on whether it's valuable or not yeah yeah and um, obviously that's what the organization sporting heritage you know there to to help with and to support as well so if there is anybody sitting on those collections from a club or an association or you know a boys and girls club that had a you know a footballing wing to it and so on there is the help out there that is you know professional in nature that's 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 expert around you know, archiving and, and heritage and the, and the preservation of collections and so on. Yeah. I, I would agree with that. And also, I'd say, I mean, obviously, you know that I, do, I, I publish a lot of rugby books as well. And it's the same, it's the same problem with rugby clubs yeah. not handing over their archives uh, to, to libraries or to archives. And there have been several occasions, and I'm, I'm sure the same thing's happened in the football world too, where a rugby club has got um, the old documentation, it's got the old shirts, it's got the old caps, and then there's a fire, the whole thing gets burnt down. And there's nothing left whatsoever, and that happened at, at Taftswell Rugby Club, uh, and I'm sure I had to do. Was it Aberystwyth Football Club uh, hit by a fire? Mm, um, yeah. So, so you are playing with you know you are playing with fire in that respect by keeping everything close to the club. And most most um, public bodies would love to be able to be the guardians of this sort of of this stuff, but always to lend it back for occasions and for them and for, and, and for the club to uh, to have them. And then also the, the, the final thing I was going to say as well, which I I did mention earlier on, is the book and the, and the project has been done t- totally independently of the FAW. It's not because we've asked and they've refused, because we haven't. Re- we've let them know what we're doing, but we haven't um, asked them for anything. Yeah. But in many ways, what what Ian and Gareth have done, and hopefully I've played a part in that too, is that we've helped to solidify and keep the history of the FAW in a very um, accessible and yes, public yes. and open way. And personally, I would say that both uh, Ian and, and, and Gareth uh, deserve a great debt of gratitude from the uh, higher echelons of, of of the FAW for what they've done, because this will only uh, reflect well in terms of the history of the third oldest football nation on earth, 
and the fact that we've, we we think we've produced the best who's who of, of any international football team, particularly in the English language, then uh, I think the FAW will reflect on this and see what an, uh, what an amazing uh, piece of work Ian and Gareth have produced. A final thing I might say, uh, going back to the question of records and fire, of course the FAW minutes up to about 1890, they were lost in the fire, which obviously was a big blow. But there was a journalist in the uh, 1920s, 1930s, George Lerry, who was the editor of the Wrexham Leader, was, um, he was a uh, member of the FAW. He was on the council and he was very pally with Llewellyn Kenrick, who founded the FAW. Kenrick gave him a lot of papers and photographs. Unfortunately, he kept them in the uh, Wrexham Leader office and that too went on fire. So it's a point well made. Uh, Ian, I'm actually really grateful for your, for your time for both of you. And as I said, best luck with, uh, with volumes two and, um, and three. Thanks, Russell. See you